0: Let's continue in worship by turning in our Bibles to the book of Daniel, chapter 9, be in Daniel, chapter 9 this morning. I don't know about you, I, uh, I mean, I'm i just getting more of a sappy person now, but I just find myself getting emotional during, uh, during uh, Lord's Supper, our time together, specifically, A, just thinking about the gospel, right, and who... Uh, who I am in relation to who Christ is and what he did for me, uh, and but then on top of that, just kind of seeing our church come forward and seeing the faces, and uh, some of you may be taking uh, the Lord's Supper for the first time as you're just now beginning to follow Jesus, and Um, Others of you, just seeing you come forward and knowing you walked through some really hard things in your life, and yet coming forward and saying, I'm still following Jesus and and everywhere in between and just doing this together as a family. I don't know, I'm just sitting down in the front row, just tears coming down my eyes and uh, blubbering mess, but uh, it's good. So anyways, we're going to be in Daniel chapter 9 this morning. And as you're turning there, I want to also say a big thank you to an organization called Farmers and Hunters Feeding the Hungry. Uh, they made a big donation of turkeys and hams to our food pantry this weekend. Uh, it's uh, really amazing. And we don't get food like that very often. So I'm really thankful to them. That's a, I know it's hunting season now. So if any of you uh, got a deer and you don't know what to do with the meat, that's a great organization to donate it to. They they give it to different food pantries and places uh, to um, to help feed the hungry. So thank you to them. And also want to say thank you to Pam Frazee for all while we're talking about food pantry and, and others who are, are, we just have great Pams in our church, right? There's Pam Van Hook with Operation Christmas child, Pam Frazee, uh, Pam Brenner, you're just a fantastic person too. I don't know, am I missing any other Pams? Uh, We just have a lot of great Pams. J- Jason also wants to be a Pam, so no, but in all seriousness, thank you to, to Pam and those who work so hard to make our food pantry happen. We don't talk about it very often, but it's a really cru- crucial ministry of our church. I know they're always in need of donations, and with food costs going up like crazy, they always take, uh, will always take donations, so food, or you can get monetary donations as well, but that's kind of an additional plug, but just want to really recognize Pam for what she does for the food pantry and just say it's just really important ministry. And with that, we are going to be in Daniel chapter 9 this morning. So hopefully you've turned there. If you have the book in front of you or if you tap there on your phone, I'm going to go before the Lord in prayer and then we are going to jump right in. So bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, God, once again we thank you uh, for who you are. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you that we can celebrate that together in taking the Lord's Supper as a church family. God, for what had to happen for us to take this meal together. That Jesus Christ... Had to come and live a perfect life and die a death that we deserved and raise again so that all who are following him, who are believers in him, can now have eternal life. And so you call us then until Jesus comes back to take this supper together. And so uh, we do that as a witness to proclaim the death and resurrection of Jesus. So we thank you for that, God. And we pray that you would uh, just help us as we're in your word this morning. In Daniel 9, Lord, just says we've needed you to do that. We just pray that your spirit would illuminate it for us. Help us to see the things you want us to see. Help us to make the changes in our lives that you want us to change. And help us to uh, love you uh, more and more as a result of our time in your word, God. So, um, yeah, we just pray that you would help us this morning. Give me uh, just a humble heart and guard my words, Lord. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so for those of you who are, maybe you're just joining us this morning for the first time, if you're uh, coming, checking out our church for the first time, or maybe you're in town for uh, Thanksgiving week or whatever it is, we'll just kind of catch you up a little bit on where we're at. So we are making a turn down the home stretch of the book of Daniel. So we started in Daniel chapter one, verse one, and now we are in Daniel chapter nine. I've... Uh, In our time in Daniel, we found it to be a fascinating book and really super relevant for us today. The book of Daniel was written in a time when the people of Israel had been kicked out of their homes and their land by some really bad guys called the Babylonians. And so they were living in exile, having had everything familiar taken away from them. That's the context in which the book of Daniel is written. So if you've been here for this sermon series, you know that Daniel is spit, split, not spit, split evenly in two halves. Daniel chapter one, chapters one to six. Daniel chapters seven to 12. The first half is a blueprint. It's a blueprint. What's a blueprint? It's a plan of action, right? Some of you have tried to undergo go construction projects in your home without blueprints, and it didn't go. Well, raise your hand if you're guilty as charged. Maybe a couple of you. yeah. It's important to have a blueprint for where you're going to do. In the same way, the first half of Daniel is made up of stories that were intended to give the people of Israel a blueprint, a plan of action for how to live their lives while they were in Babylon, while they were in exile. And it helps us as well to see what does it look like to be a faithful follower of Jesus before he comes back in a land that is like Babylon in many ways. So the first half of Daniel is a blueprint but through these stories of Daniel and his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego about how to live their lives. But the second half of Daniel isn't so much a blueprint anymore. It's a map. So what's a map? What does a map do? I honestly don't know. I haven't seen a map for years. It's, I can't even tell you the last time I saw a map. I don't know. But I know Google Maps, what does that do, right? It tells you how to get to your destination. It tells, you, tells me how do I get where I'm going. I am highly reliant on Google Maps uh, to get anywhere I need to go uh, or I find myself getting lost quickly. And so the second half of Daniel is a map of how to leave Babylon, how to leave Babylon so first half living in Babylon second half a map of leaving Babylon the problem is we got to Daniel chapter 7 and it was kind of like our google maps got switched to Chinese or something right like what is even going on here I don't understand any of these words we're having all these great stories and then wham we had four chapter 7 four beasts coming out of the sea with horns and wings and all sorts of stuff it's like what is even happening right Actually, that analogy, switching our Google Maps to Chinese, is not a bad analogy because to understand the second half of Daniel, we need to learn a new language. And that language is called apocalyptic literature. It's a specific genre of literature, and it functions in a specific way. And so we've learned a lot about how to understand apocalyptic literature so far in Daniel. And so once we learn the language of the second half of Daniel we realize the question at heart of all of these visions, right? So there's a vision in chapter 7. There's a vision in chapter 8. There's a vision in chapter 9 that we're going to get to. And then there's a fourth vision in chapters 10 through 12. And the question at the heart of all of these visions, even if they're really confusing to read the first time you read through it. So But if we take a step back and look at the last half of Daniel as a whole, the question is, how long until God fixes all of this how long until God takes us from this awful situation and restores everything for the way it should be we're God's people right and right now we are not living like it we don't even have a place to live we're not acting like it at all so how long until God makes all this right again that's the question at the heart of the second half of of Daniel And the question uh, at the heart of our passage this morning is the same. How long are we going to have to live in Babylon? So Daniel's actually really specifically seeking the Lord to say, how long until this whole exile is over? Daniel chapter 9 actually has two parts. So we're going to take it in two parts. Uh, The first part is Daniel talking to God. And he's asking him how much longer the exile would be. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. And then the second part is God's answer to Daniel. God tells Daniel exactly how long the exile would be. And thankfully, God's response to Daniel is, that we're going to see the next time we pick up this chapter, is super clear, it's easy to understand, and there's really no uh, controversy at all throughout church history about it. I'm just kidding. It is actually literally one of the most debated passages in all of Scripture. So you've seen me sweating and wrestling through some of these issues up here and changing my mind like 18 times as I've studied it. Well, it's not going to get any better when we go through the second half of Daniel chapter 9. I'm just warning you ahead of time. But the first half is a little bit... uh, More clear, And so this morning, we're going to enjoy our time in the first half of Daniel chapter 9 and look at what Daniel has to say to God. So we all get it. Daniel 9 is a conversation two ways. Daniel talking to God, God responding to Daniel. This morning, we're looking at Daniel talking to God. Next time, we're going to try to make sense of what God says to Daniel. Sound good? Everybody ready? All right, very good. Look with me then at verse 1. I'll read it. It says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, this is my best stab at that, by descent Amid, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem namely 70 years. Now you might already be a little bit confused reading that but it makes sense if we think about it. So there's a new king now, right? Darius. So this is the kingdom that came after Babylon. So you remember Belshazzar with the king from the last vision and uh, then we remember in Daniel chapter 5, there was the handwriting on the wall. And Belshazzar literally wet his pants when he saw it because he was so scared. And then he said uh, that Daniel interpreted it for him and said, basically, your kingdom's over tonight. And then the next kingdom took over. Belshazzar died. And the next kingdom took over that very night. We all remember that from a while ago. Or at least pretend like you do. It just makes me feel so much better if you pretend like you do. Okay, good. Everyone does. That feels, makes me feel good. So, that's, uh, so now we're in. So we're a couple years, we're years after uh, the last vision of Daniel, chapter eight. Some years have gone by, and now it's the first year of Darius and the new kingdom, which is the second beast, right? That came up out of the sea. It's also the torso of the statue that Daniel or that Nebuchadnezzar had in his dream. Hopefully, all this is kind of coming together. So now we're in the second. We're moving forward here. It's the second kingdom, and Daniel is having his quiet time. Okay? he's reading his bible like and he's a really good bible reader and we're going to see that in a second. He's having his daily quiet time and he's reading Jeremiah and he comes across a passage that talks about their exile in Babylon. So that's what we just read. I perceive I Daniel verse 2. I Daniel perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So he's reading in Jer- Jeremiah, and he reads about the, um, the desolation of Jerusalem. Now what he's reading he's a passage. You have it in your Bibles too. It's Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 10 to 12. And this is actually interesting because this is a verse that may be familiar to many of you. But uh, let's, I'm going to read it. Uh, at least verse 11 is very familiar. It so says, this is what the Lord says, verse 10, it's on your screen. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to, to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. Who's heard Jeremiah twenty nine eleven 11 before, right? I know the plans I have for you. And it's a great verse, and it makes you feel really good. And a lot of times we kind of claim that promise individually, right? Like I don't have to be worried about anything because God has good plans for me. The problem is, that's really not what this verse is talking about in the context. Now, God doesn't have plans to harm you. He does have plans to give you hope in a future. So those things are true. It's just not what this verse necessarily is talking about. What this verse is talking about is the exact situation that's going on in Babylon right now. So what this verse is saying is that even though Israel is going to be punished for their sin... Their punishment wasn't going to last forever, it was only going to last 70 years, which we see in verse 10. And so if you want to use this passage in your daily life, Jeremiah 29, 11, there's a better way to do it. It's more like, say, um, now this is not any of the teenagers in our congregation, but just you have to go with me. Like, say some, like your, your teenager uh, does something wrong, and so they have to be grounded. Again, that's never happened to anyone in, in our church, nor would it, right? But let's say that that happened, and I say, so you say, oh, you know, all right, no phone for a week. and Your daughter goes, A week? Why does it have to be a week? And uh, you say, well, after the week, I'll give your phone back because I know the plan's That I have for you, says your mom, plans to prosper you and not to harm you and to give you a hope and a future. And so this punishment is really for you to have a hope and a future. So that's how we can kind of use this verse uh, in the proper context. Does that make sense? So it's talking about a punishment that is going to end so that Israel wouldn't just experience the punishment of God forever and ever endlessly, but so that they could learn and then have this hope and a future living within the covenant promises of God and then they can get their phones back, right? Does that make sense? Okay, so uh, that's still kind of beside the point though of what we're we're talking about. The the point is there's an end date, okay, to Jerusalem's to Israel's exile in Babylon. How how many years? I already said it. Somebody called out, "How many years?" Verse 10. 70 years. Now uh, this is where Daniel is starting to get excited because he does some quick math in his head and he realizes it's been, with the first year of Darius, it's been 66 years since he was first brought into captivity. Now, who's good at math? If, it's, if God says 70 years and it's already been 66 years, how many years do they have left? Uh, it's four is the answer, not seven. Four years left. Very good. You are pretty good at math. So that's the context now of what's going on in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel is reading his Bible, comes across this verse in Jeremiah. It says, the exile in Babylon is going to last 70 years, and then I'll restore your fortunes because I have good plans for your future. And Daniel's like, yes, thank you, Jesus. Or not Jesus, sorry, that was, that was I messed up my Bible timeline there. Thank you, God, <laughs> Yahweh, thank you, Lord that this punishment is going to come to an end. So what does Daniel do as a result of reading what he saw in Jeremiah chapter 29? Well, Jeremiah 29 verse 12, which is on your screen, says, "Then you will call, go back, one, then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you." So that's exactly what he does. So we see that in verse 3. Then I turned my face to the Lord, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. So he says, this is about to come to an end. And what you tell us in your word is that when that time ends, we're going to come back to you and call on you and pray to you. And when we do that, you will listen. Right, So Daniel's not like, he's not like trying to manipulate God like, oh, well, now it says I have to pray, so I better pray really quick so that way the it ends. He's, he's just truly like trusting that what God says is going to happen. Now, it's just, I mean, if we look back in the book of Daniel, God has a 100% track record on these things, right? He's 100%, right? Every time that there was a dream that God gave Daniel the interpretation to, it's right. Every time God said something would happen, that is exactly what happened and so Daniel's just reading this with just this faith of like God I trust you and you say we're going to call on you so now I'm going to call on you and I trust you're going to listen this is a good way for us to read our Bibles too just very simply and plainly like trusting if God says something then that is what is true So he prays this prayer and demonstrates this incredible faith because of how he's seen God operate in the past. past. And so he prays this beautiful prayer of confession on behalf of the people of Israel. And so the rest of our time, the rest of the first half of this passage is this prayer of confession. And we're going to see three things in this prayer that Daniel recognized about God and about his people. So let's take a look at it. The first thing that Daniel recognized was that God wasn't at fault. Israel was. Look at verse four. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. That's you, God. You're the great and awesome God. You keep your promises and you love with a steadfast love those who love you and keep your commandments. That's you, God, but he says, verse five, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. So what are you saying? This is like the ultimate biblical version of of, uh, Daniel saying, it's not you, it's me right? Anyone ever break up with someone using that line, it's not you, it's me? Anyone want to admit it? Nobody? Okay, anyone have been, had that line told to them, it's not you, it's me? Yeah, more of us. Yeah, that, that makes sense. But it's never true, is it, right? It's, it's, it's always you. It's, 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 it's never the other person, but this time it actually is true, right? Daniel's saying, God, you're not the problem here. It's us. We're the problem. You love And keep your covenant promises with those who love you and keep your commandments. But we neither loved you nor kept your commandments. We failed. We sinned. Big time. Daniel, catch this, is not holding a grudge against God because of the consequences that his people are facing. Right? Like, God, you're so harsh. You're so unfair. There's no hint of that. He's saying, God... You are fair. You don't take delight in punishing your people. In fact, God, if we had obeyed for like even one second, we wouldn't be in this mess. But we didn't obey for one second. Every time, God, that you gave us a covenant promise, we just messed up immediately. And that's true, right? We see that all over our Bibles. If we kind of zoom out from the Old Testament, it's amazing to see time and time again, God comes to the people of Israel and gives them a promise, and then they just immediately mess it up, right? So God makes a covenant promise with Abraham and Sarah, and tells them, I'm going to make out of you an elderly, childless couple. I'm going to make out of you a great nation. Right? That's a p- great promise that God gave to them. So what do they do? Immediately, they don't believe God. And Sarah tells Abraham to have a, have a kid with, with Hagar instead. Because that makes more sense. Right? So they're just like immediately, totally disobey. And then God delivers Egypt from slavery. <laughs> Or get delivers Israel from slavery out of Egypt and then takes Moses to Mount Sinai to give him the Ten Commandments and tell them how to live. And what's Israel doing while Moses is up there? They're, li- they're, they're making a golden calf to worship, right? They're having Aaron make a golden calf. And then in one of the funniest verses to me in the Bible, Aaron tells Moses, like, I don't know, they just threw their gold in the fire and this calf came out. I don't know how it happened, right? It's like, okay, sure, God promises David that he would be given an everlasting kingdom in 2 Samuel chapter 7 through his son. What happens? Four four chapters later, that's like longer than the other ones, but four chapters later, he sees Bathsheba in the hot tub and like you know what happens then. Like it's again, it's one time after another. After another, God makes an incredible promise to his people and they just fail epically. (laughs) And Daniel is well aware of Israel's past and present history, that every turn when they had a chance to obey, they just basically disobeyed in the most catastrophic way possible. And it wasn't God's fault. God was plenty patient with them. He had given them plenty of chances. That leads us to the second thing that Daniel recognized, which is that God's punishment of Israel was fair. His punishment of Israel was fair. Skip down to verse 11. All of Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. He says, and the curse and the oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great command, uh, calamity. What's he talking about here? What does he mean a curse and an oath? What is that? We don't talk like that anymore, do we? Like if somebody like uh, backs out of a contract that you made with the union, you have broken our oath and now may curses be upon you and your family, right? Like nobody, you shouldn't be talking like that. That's weird, right? So nobody talks like that. What does that mean? What, what's he saying that we have uh, the, the curse and the oath that have been poured out upon us. Well, he's he's referring to something very specific in the Word. Again, Daniel knew his Bible. And so in, he's talking about something that is from Deuteronomy chapter 28. If you want to keep your finger in Daniel 9, you can turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Now, the book of Deuteronomy is Moses' last sermon before he dies and Israel enters into the promised land. And this is all about how Israel, as a nation, could have a right relationship with God. And so at the end of Moses' sermon of Deuteronomy, which is way longer than any of my sermons, by the way, but at the end of this sermon, there's this section called blessings and curses. Blessings and curses. Israel is entering into this covenant relationship with God, which meant that both parties had certain obligations that they needed to uphold, just like any sort of contract that you enter into with somebody. Both parties have to uphold their end of the bargain. And so if they were obedient and kept the law and upheld their end of the covenant, God would bless Israel and make them a great nation and make them prosper, which sounds pretty good. Unfortunately for Israel, there was also a curses section, and this was pretty lengthy. I don't know, it's kind of funny to me. Maybe it's like like, uh, the Holy Spirit through Moses didn't make him spend that much time on the blessings section because he knew it was going to be irrelevant, and the curses section was basically all that they were going to deal with. But either way, verse 15 of Deuteronomy 28 says this, and it just spells it out. Uh, This is what's going to happen if you disobey. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. One of those curses in verse 49, the Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle. It shall eat the offspring of your cattle and the fruit of your ground until you are destroyed. That doesn't sound very pleasant. But God made it pretty clear, didn't he, what would happen if they disobeyed and Daniel knew this he did, he knew that his ancestors had done the very thing that God warned them against and so they suffered the consequences that God told them would happen and that's why he says in verse 14 back to Daniel chapter 9 therefore the lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us catch this for the lord our god is righteous in all his works that he has done and we have not obeyed his voice god is righteous to bring this calamity upon us because we failed. So we see this recognition from Daniel as he's now pleading with God and confessing the the corporate sins of Israel. Saying, God, we're ready for this exile to be over. We see this recognition from Daniel that God is not the one at fault and that his punishment was fair because he told them exactly what would happen if they disobeyed. But that's not the whole story. So after Daniel recognizes God's holiness and Israel's sinfulness, he cries out to the Lord for mercy. And in doing so, this is what's cool. He acknowledges that God's mercy would not be on the basis of Israel's obedience. It wasn't conditioned on Israel's obedience. Daniel's plea to God wasn't, God, we're going to get it all together. I promise we're really close. We're going to start obeying you. And when we do that, then you can rescue us. That wasn't it at all. Look at verse 17. Skip down there. It says, now, therefore, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy and for your own sake, O Lord, Make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. And this, for we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, pay attention and act. Do Delay not for your own sake, O oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. All right. Again, he's not saying, all right, God, we've got it all together now. We've stopped sinning, and so we're ready to uphold our end of the bargain, which means you can remove this punishment for us, from us. There's not even a hint of that in there. It's the opposite. We don't present our pleas before you because of your righteousness. What is the basis by which Daniel begs the Lord to have mercy? His own glory. Verse 17, for your own sake. Verse 18, your name. Verse 19, for your own sake. Verse 19 again, for your name. What's he saying here? He's saying, God, it is in your best interest to save us. Because you are righteous. Isn't that interesting? talks about the righteousness of God. So we just saw God is righteous to punish them. And now, in the very same breath, he says, and you are righteous to have mercy on us. Isn't that fascinating about the character of God? God, it doesn't reflect well on you, he's saying, that your people are in exile and your city is laying in ruins. Do something, God. Not because we deserve it, but because it's going to bring you glory. The nations are mocking you right now, God. You need to act so that you can receive the glory that you are due for the sake of your name. If nothing else, God, save us for the sake of your name. That's his prayer. That's his closing argument Like I said, next time we're in Daniel, we're going to take a look at God's answer to that prayer. We'll do our best with that. But for now, we have one last question to answer for this week, which is, what do we do with this prayer? Right? What do we do with it? It's a prayer of confession, yes, but it's a prayer for a specific time. Like I said, Daniel is begging God for deliverance for his people. So what do we do with it now? Well, if you're in Christ, you've already been delivered from your sins, right? So that deliverance that Daniel's begging to God for has already happened for you. There's a strange tension, actually, in the Christian faith when you think about it. Colossians 2.14 tells us this wonderful truth that God has canceled the record of debt against you by nailing it to the cross, right? That's why we can celebrate the Lord's Supper, because of what has already happened, you had a whole lot of debt that you owed God, and he just canceled all of it by nailing it to the cross. And so, your sins are forgiven, and yet, we are also called to regular confession of our sin both to God and to one another. And when we think about when we confess what's happening there, it's, when we confess our sin, what's happening is very similar things to what Daniel recognizes on behalf of Israel. So we have three things that we recognize in our confession. It's the same exact things that Daniel saw here. The first thing we recognize is that God's not the one at fault, right? We are when we sin. Man, how often, maybe I'm the only one convicted by this, but how often... Do we just want to minimize our sin, right? Or compare it to other people's sin? Or somehow blame God for being too strict? God, surely this isn't that big of a deal. I know you said not to do this in your word, but there are so many other bad things that I didn't do, God. So you really shouldn't be so hard on me. Right? We just want to like minimize it. And when we think that way, it's a complete misunderstanding of the character of God. God shows us how to live in his word, and we mess it up. You cannot confess your sin to God and minimize it at the same time, can you? How's that work in your marriage when you try to do that? I'm sorry that what you think I did is such a big deal, honey. (laughs) Please forgive me, right? That's that's not a confession of sin, is it? And what's going to happen? You're going to be sleeping on the couch that night if that's how you try to confess your sin. Well, God doesn't make us sleep on the couch. But a true confession of your sin before God is an acknowledgement of his holiness and the fact that you just still have a lot of sanctification work that's got to go on in your heart. Saying, God, I confess that I sinned against you. And the reason that I sinned against you is because my heart still wants my own way, even though I've already been forgiven and now I'm called to follow you. So help me, God, to want for myself what you want for me. Ultimately, that's the root of the sin that you still have as a struggle with as a follower of Jesus. It's not wanting for yourself the same thing that God wants for you because you still kind of think that your way's better. And that's why we can't minimize it. And so confession of sin acknowledges God's not the one at fault. He's not too strict. He's not unfair. It's my hard heart is the reason that it is being softened by the Holy Spirit, but still has a long way to go. That's the reason for my sin. Second, confession of sin acknowledges that God's punishment of sinners is fair. Israel was told very clearly what would happen if they disobeyed. And they still did, and they received their punishment for their actions, which was exile. We're told what the punishment for sin is in Romans chapter 6, right? The wages of sin is death. And yet the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. So when we confess our sin to God regularly as followers of Jesus, we're actually reminding ourselves of the gospel. God, I sinned against you, and because of that, I rightly deserve death. I did it, God. I'm the guilty one. And yet, even though I was found guilty, you don't make me pay the punishment. Instead, God, you sent your perfect son, the spotless lamb, to die in my place. And not only that, but you elevated me to sonship. I'm a son of the king, a daughter of the king. Thank you, God. You are just and you are righteous, and your judgments are fair, and you saw fit to send your son to pay the penalty that I owed. Praise you. Thank you, God. Finally, the third thing we recognize as we confess is that, this is amazing, God's mercy isn't conditioned on our future obedience. I struggle with this. How many times does your confession of sin look like this? God, I'm so sorry. I promise I'm gonna really, really try hard not to do it again. Please forgive me, God. It's almost like we th- like God like will only forgive us if we just like really promise not to do it again. Now you shouldn't do it again. That's part of that right recognition, and yet His mercy has nothing to do with that. Isn't that amazing? God is not holding out his mercy until you show him that you can do better. We see this in the parable of the prodigal son. We don't have time to go into the whole story. So if you haven't haven't read the parable of the prodigal son or you haven't read it in a while, that's your homework for this week, okay? Read Luke chapter 15. But here's what happens. The son, after squandering his father's inheritance, decides he's going to return to the father's house. Right. He says, I've blown it out here with, the, with my father's inheritance. I've got to go back home. And so what does he do? He rehearses this speech in his head. You see this in the text. He rehearses this speech. He says, this is what I'm going to say. I'm going to say, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Please treat me like one of your hired servants. Like, Father, if you'll just please just take me back. I realize I blew it, but just like give me some sort of just like a scrap of mercy. You just treat me like your servant.'" That's his plan. What happens when he gets home to his father and he starts making his speech? You'll notice this in the text next time you read it. You've got to read it. The father cuts him off. <laughs> So the son starts saying what he rehearsed that he was going to say. God, I've sinned against heaven. and before, Father, I've sinned against heaven before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, servants, go get me the robe and the ring and let's kill a calf. And we're going to have a party because the son's home. He's not even listening. He's just ready, at the ready to just pour out his mercy. Isn't that amazing? His son just wasted all of his inheritance. He's not even like, okay, well, just tell me, like, what lessons did you learn while you were out there, son? (laughs) Show me how you're not going to do it again. None of that. His mercy is not conditioned on the son's future obedience. Why? Do you know the only thing that the father cares about? Do you want to be my son? Do you want to live in my house again? Do you acknowledge that life is better in my house than anywhere else? And even if you had all the money you wanted to buy anything that you wanted in the whole world and go travel and do anything you want to do, life is better here. None of that is worth anything compared to living in my house and being my son. That is what the Father cares about. And so us, like Daniel, can say, God, you have saved me and it brings you so much glory in doing that. A sinner like me. I'm just saying, it's amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Only God can do that. And so when we confess our sin, we say, God. I messed up. I sinned against heaven and against you. Please forgive me. When you do that, every single time, you will find the waiting arms of the Father saying, come home, my precious son. Come home, my cherished daughter. Just come home. What love could remember no wrongs we have done. Omniscient. All-knowing God, he counts not their son. They're thrown into the sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. God, our sins are many. Your mercy is more and you bring glory that is due to your name when you save sinners like us. Thank you, God. We Praise you. God, even though we've been saved, even though we've been brought into the Father's house, we still mess up, we still still track in mud sometimes, we need our feet washed every once in a while through confession, and so, God, Pray that we would be a people that are just standing at the ready to confess our sin humbly because we recognize that you are God and we are not. And when we confess our sin to you and one another, God, may we find you waiting with open arms and mercy, then come home, God. Thank you. Praise the Lord. While our sins are many, your mercy is more pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and let's respond in worship.